This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. We need to listen to the voices of women and girls and women-led organizations on the ground who can help guide us. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. A new report from the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security finds that women and girls' health and protection should be a top priority in emergency and crisis situations. Janet Fleischman is the author of the report. She's a senior associate with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. I sat down with Janet to discuss the report and the impact of U.S. policy on global health security, specifically concerning women and girls. Janet, thank you so much for joining us here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you, Beverly. Pleasure to be here. Before we start with an overview of your really fabulous report, which is called How Can We Better Reach Women and Girls in Crises? First, let's start with the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. Can you give an overview of what the commission is doing? It's co-chaired by former Senator Kelly Ayotte and former CDC Director Julie Gerberding. Exactly. So the CSIS Commission for Strengthening America's Health Security brings together a distinguished group of high-level opinion leaders, and it's an effort to bridge security and health. It includes six members of Congress, past administration officials, and representatives from industry, private foundations, universities, and non-governmental organizations. And the idea is to chart a bold vision for the future of U.S. leadership in global health security. The commission has also expanded the boundaries of what we're talking about in terms of health security, and that's where this report comes into play, because we have put a special focus on the delivery of maternal health and family planning services and gender-based violence prevention and response as critical to advancing resiliency and health security. And this is the first time, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first time with your report that uh, global health security issues that are specific to women and girls are being focused on. Exactly. And that's a real contribution that we think of the commission and of this part of the commission's work to be able to look at global health security more broadly, look at the situation of what we're calling disordered settings around the world, these crisis and fragile settings, and look at some of the realities that women and girls face and how does that impact health security and the resiliency of communities. And what are some of these critical health and safety needs that are specifically unique to women and girls that you're concerned about? Women and girls are key actors in humanitarian and crisis response but they are often targeted as weapons of war, as a strategy of war, specifically to undermine communities' resiliency and health security. And the magnitude of the problem is really quite stark. It's estimated that one in five women and girls who are internally displaced or who are refugees have experienced gender-based violence. This is often designed specifically to traumatize communities and to silence women and undermine the resiliency of their families and their communities. We know that pregnancy and childbirth does not stop during emergencies. And in 2019, an estimated 34 million women and girls were of reproductive age in crisis settings, and 5 million of them are estimated to be pregnant. So we realize that these issues of maternal health and family planning are central to crisis response. 
They save lives in these crises. And access to these services is a glaring gap in many of these settings. And the report recommends doing what to address these particular issues? So the report calls for a new approach to marshalling U.S. capacities in these areas to have an integrated approach and strategy that will address the issues that women and girls face, uh, focused on a couple of key areas. First of all, bringing forward new flexible funding. We've called for $30 million annually over five years to launch a new model of service delivery in two to three crisis settings around the world. We call for this to be piloted in two to three settings of high unmet need where there's strong high importance for U.S. health security interests. We are calling for establishing a secretariat comprised of high-level USAID and State Department officials with technical experts to oversee the delivery and ensure alignment. And finally, to ensure high-level committed U.S. leadership, to encourage other donors and multilateral organizations and U.N. agencies to contribute to this strengthened model and to hold U.S. agencies and programs accountable. Before I follow up on the points that you've made there, I, I want to back up and ask, how is it that since women are half the world's population and crises and emergencies are not new, how is it that the issues that you've just outlined, maternal health, all of these issues have kind of gotten left on the sidelines in the conversations about how to deal with global health security in these disordered settings. Exactly. So the focus on women and girls is often overtaken by competing priorities. There's critical issues of food and water and sanitation, and there's very little incentive to integrate the program response. And women's lives are integrated. You know, you, it's the, the siloed response that so often characterizes programming does, is not conducive to reaching the needs of women and girls or populations often more broadly. And often the lack of a coherent strategy, the lack of incentives to integrate programming, the lack of the tools and mechanisms that will adequately capture the realities and the vulnerabilities that they face all contribute to the fact that these issues are deprioritized almost all the time, even though the U.S. has very extensive capacities in these areas. Mm-hmm. Was there a specific situation that prompted the examination of the issues that are unique to women and girls? I mean, there's Yemen, there's Syria, there's the Democratic Republic of the Congo, there was the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar, there's Venezuela. Were these motivators and you're looking at this issue? We tried to highlight those particular crises and others in the report to try to give a sense of what's happening today, what are the issues that women and girls are facing in current crises around the world. And as you noted, we looked at the Ebola crisis in the, that's currently unraveling in the DRC, uh, but we also looked at what happened in West Africa in the Ebola crisis and, and the particular issues of how does Ebola manifest in pregnant women in particular concerns about how long Ebola stays in semen after someone has been essentially cured of Ebola with implications for how should they be released, what are the guidelines, what does that mean for safe sex, what does that mean for issues of gender-based violence and the unprotected sex that would put women and girls at new risk of contracting Ebola. We looked at issues in South Sudan where the levels of gender-based violence are extreme 
and have been documented extensively. And yet, the response remains very inadequate. We looked at Yemen. We looked at the Rohingya crisis. The Rohingya crisis, as you know, was catapulted to international attention in part because of the mass rapes by the Myanmar military that led to the flight of three-quarters of a million refugees. And the issues around the world in Venezuela right now, looking at what happens to women and girls who are in Venezuela, their lack of access for family planning commodities, maternal health services, but also when they flee, issues of survival sex, issues of gender-based violence, what are they confronting along the border? So these are current issues in every crisis around the world. And gender-based violence is a thread that I'm hearing throughout each of the areas that you've mentioned here, how can it and should it be addressed since it's something that affects women and girls in particular? So it's important to recognize that there has been much more attention to gender-based violence in recent years, including by the U.S. government. But despite this global recognition, it still remains severely underfunded at less than 1% of all humanitarian assistance. Less than 1%? Yes. And it comes in many forms. GBV includes rape. It includes sexual exploitation and abuse, intimate partner violence, forced and early marriage, sexual slavery, and of course, emotional and psychological abuse. Men and boys are also sometimes subject to gender-based violence. We have to note that. And some of the health consequences include sexually transmitted infections, including HIV, fistula, and mental health impacts, as well as physical injuries and other forms of trauma. Adolescent girls are obviously especially vulnerable Mm -hmm. in crisis settings. And survivors of sexual violence have very critical needs. This includes needs for legal protection, mental health services, reproductive health services, social and economic reintegration, stigma reduction. And these are things that programs do know how to provide. Mm -hmm. The problem is if they're not funded, if we're not listening to local actors, which is another important theme, who can access these women and girls when they need to come forward for services, who can provide those more sustainable long-term services and analysis of the situation, that always presents problems because gender-based violence is ubiquitous Mm -hmm. and very hidden. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to get your arms around the extent of the problem in any situation, but the leading humanitarian groups now, including the International Committee of the Red Cross, have said you have to assume that it's happening unless you have evidence that shows to the contrary. Because the one key point here is that if you're a victim of GBV, it's very difficult to talk about, particularly if you are a migrant who is fleeing a violent situation and something happens along the way. There are many motivators for someone not wanting to talk about it. Exactly. And just to circle back on the issue of local capacity, who is that woman or girl going to talk to? Right. Maybe it's not going to be an international humanitarian worker. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's more likely to be a women's-led local civil Mm -hmm. society group or a local healthcare worker. Are we giving them the the resources and helping strengthen their capacity to be able to provide these kinds of services, hopefully with a more integrated package so that they can access the reproductive health and other mental health services that they would need? 
And you mentioned the local capacity. Where is the role of the U.S.? You also noted that the U.S. has great capacity to address these issues. Where's the interface between the people on the ground who are there, who are local, who are helping, and the people who are coming in from the U.S. and from other places to offer support? It's always a bit of a disconnect because despite USAID's new framework Mm -hmm. uh, promoting a journey to self-reliance, and this would be a part of that, uh, it is often difficult for the U.S. to provide direct funding Mm -hmm. to local groups. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of reasons for that. And Mm -hmm. it's a complicated and uh, situation that affects more than just the U.S. in terms of international donors. But there is greater recognition that these obstacles have to be overcome so that these groups can receive the sorts of support and capacity building where that would be helpful that can help address the issues in the crisis settings. And you mentioned USAID as one of the agencies that is immersed in this in this area and working on these issues. Are there other U.S. agencies that also work in this space? So the principal U.S. agencies are under USAID, the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, OFDA. They deal primarily with displaced populations. At the State Department, the Bureau of Populations, Refugees, and Migration deals mostly with the refugee population. There's coordination and there's overlap. Um, There's also the uh, USAID's Global Health Bureau, who are the lead in uh, reproductive health, family planning, maternal Mm -hmm. health, but don't always operate in crisis settings. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we are calling for is greater engagement and alignment between and among these agencies. You just answered my question. I was going to say, do these different agencies talk to one another? They do. Not enough. Uh, And I think there are also other agencies. There are times when uh, the Department of Defense is involved. Uh, Obviously, CDC is involved. So the need for better interagency coordination is very clear. It's not easy in any setting, um, certainly not in crisis settings. Mm -hmm. But we set forth a secretariat that we think could help coordinate those efforts and be responsible and accountable for that kind of integration of activities. Is there bipartisan support? Because I know that sometimes when maternal health and reproductive health are mentioned, there can be some controversy. It's important to remember that not only is the U.S. the lead donor for humanitarian response around the world, but also it's the lead donor for international family planning. And there has always been strong bipartisan support for those programs. Obviously, there are many who would stop, uh, consider a red line at abortion, but the U.S. does not provide abortion as a method of family planning. It's against U.S. Um, U.S. law at this time. Mm-hmm. So this is all about providing voluntary family planning, and the U.S. plays a critical role around the world in those areas, and there is and has always been strong bipartisan support for ensuring voluntary access to family planning. And there's bipartisan support specifically for the issues that you've outlined in this report, correct? And the commission itself is a bipartisan commission. And I think there's too often in our polarized environment, we think that these are issues that are too toxic to take on. And I think it's very important for us to look at that and understand that that is not the case, that there's lots of bipartisan support and historic bipartisan support for these very issues. And the uh, importance of the U.S. being a lead in addressing issues like gender-based violence, like maternal health and family planning, is very consistent with U.S. policy. 
Let's talk a little bit about gender expertise. That was something that's noted in the report as a need for the people who are coming in to help the women who are in these situations. Can you tell me more about that? So sometimes, uh, for example, OFDA will send out a, a DART team, a disaster assistance response team, to evaluate the situation on the ground. They are not required to have gender expertise on those DART teams. Often they do. Uh, but there's not enough of that kind of capacity of people who can go into the field and understand what they need to look for to find some of these issues that are going to be somewhat hidden, as we've mm -hmm. described, and to speak with the right actors on the ground to understand what are the gaps in services, what could be provided, where is mm -hmm. strengthening needed, and how does this connect with and integrate with the other services that are going to be provided. Before we wrap up, I noticed in the commission's statement about its reason for working in this, it talks about focusing on ending the cycle of crisis and complacency in health security preparedness and replacing it with continuous prevention, protection, and resilience. How realistic is that given budgetary issues and constraints that are sometimes a factor in decisions that are made about where the help goes or what's done? The reality is these interventions are not costly. A lot of these are the kinds of preventive issues and, and helping build resiliency that have huge returns on investment and are simply not that expensive. We know what to do. We have lots of international guidelines and guidance on these issues. There's been tremendous work done, much of it supported over the years by the U.S. government. And we need to implement those guidelines. We need to make sure it happens on the ground. We need to hold actors accountable. And we need to listen to the voices of women and girls and, and women-led organizations on the ground who can help guide us in terms of the design and implementation of these programs. Janet Fleischman, thank you so much. Thank you, Beverly. Always a pleasure. Pleasure to have you here. And thank you for joining us. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.